Hello, everyone. I'm Gary Urbanowitz, your host for the Throwback FDNY podcast series. Each show has three segments going back in time about the FDNY and its history. Remember, you can listen to all of the past episodes of Throwback FDNY by going to the website of the New York City Fire Museum at nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny and choosing the digital platform you use for listening to podcasts. Now, let's start this month's show. In this episode of Throwback FDNY, in celebration of Emergency Medical Services Week, I would like to welcome back my co-host, retired FDNY Division Chief and EMS historian, James Martin, to discuss the introduction of the pulmotor resuscitators in 1914 and how resuscitation equipment and techniques have changed over the years. Welcome, Jim. It's great to be here with you once again. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for inviting me, Gary. Let's give our listeners a bit of the backstory of why we picked today's topic. A number of years ago, you were working to establish an EMS museum on the grounds of the FDNY EMS Academy at Fort Totten and spoke to the director of the New York City Fire Museum at the time. Pick up the story from there. So in doing research for the EMS Museum nearly 30 years ago, just prior to the merger, we visited the fire museum to see if they had any information or photographs on the development of the city's municipal ambulance service. Besides the hundreds of artifacts on display, the fire museum has hundreds more items in storage. One such item was a large oak box for a pulmotor resuscitator. And give us some history on the device. The pulmotor was first introduced in 1907 and it was the very first self-contained mechanical resuscitator and the first piece of equipment designed exclusively for the pre-hospital environment. By contrast, another early device designed primarily for ambulance use, the Thomas Traction Splint, was not designed until 1919. Since we're all part of the same department now, and the fact that the FDNY owns the collection at the Fire Museum, you came and picked it up to bring it to the new EMS Museum at Fort Totten, And we got a surprise. We did get a surprise. We thought it was just an empty box, but in fact, it was semi-complete. It was a jumble of parts, and we're going to need quite a few more pieces before we can put it on display at the EMS Museum. We estimate that the Fire Museum's pull motor is approximately 100 years old. Pull motors, by and large, were removed from general service prior to World War II. It's a great addition to the EMS Museum. It was designed to resuscitate drowning or electrocution victims or those overcome by chemical asphyxiation, illuminating gas, or smoke inhalation by mechanically inflating and deflating the lungs when the operator flipped a switch. The pull motor, by the way, is enormous. It measures approximately 18 inches wide by 3 feet long. It's a foot thick and weighs roughly 75 pounds. It incorporates a small steel oxygen cylinder and a pressure regulator connected to a rubber mask, which was secured to the patient's face with rubber straps. Inside the pulmotor case was a large rubber-tipped forceps that the surgeon would use to clamp the tongue and prevent it from obstructing the airway. 
Even though it was long before what we considered to be the entry of the FDNY to formalize pre-hospital emergency care in 1914, the department issued four pull motors and four lung motors to companies in Manhattan and Brooklyn. But they were kept in quarters, not placed on the apparatus. So back in 1914 or so, we have this device that can be used to inflate and deflate the lungs. But what was really going on in terms of care for a patient in the field who may have been in cardiac arrest or you know, respiratory arrest when they went to use this? What was kind of the, the protocols back in 1914? Well, if you were a Boy Scout in the 50s, you learned the Holger-Nielsen method of resuscitation where a place, patient was placed face down and you would lift the arms and that would inflate the lungs. Prior to that, patients were rolled on a barrel to allow <laughs> air to go into the lungs. So I remember when I became an EMT in 1973, we had bag valve masks, you know, the AMBU bag, we used to call it. When did those show up? Do you know? I, I don't really know how old those are. Probably in the 60s is when we first saw them on the ambulance. Prior to that, plastics weren't really sophisticated enough to be able to mold and be able to inflate and deflate properly. Yeah, and still be flexible enough to exactly. bounce back and all that. Yeah. So a lot of the equipment you see on ambulances, a lot of the development that you see that occurred in the 60s and 70s was a result of technological breakthroughs, solid-state equipment, development of plastics that were amenable to making things like intubation tubes. Let's take a brief break, then we'll be back with more conversation about the history of resuscitation equipment. Hello, everyone. I'm Jennifer Brown, the Executive Director of the New York City Fire Museum. Thank you for listening to our Throwback FDNY podcast. We invite you to become a member of our wonderful cultural institution in Lower Manhattan. We preserve the history of the fire department in New York City, educate the public on fire and life safety, and celebrate the wonderful traditions of the FDNY. To learn more about our membership program and the perks it offers, go to nycfiremuseum.org. Based on Department Order 191 from October 16, 1930, the pull motors were to be turned in, but we don't know if that meant they were permanently removed from FDNY units. Was the device in widespread use in pre-hospital care, especially in New York City ambulances, Jim? My research shows that pull motors were apparently too large to fit in a 1920s vintage ambulance and too heavy to be carried alone by the ambulance surgeons. Remember that the ambulance chauffeur remained with the vehicle on all calls. That means that the first piece of pre-hospital medical equipment wasn't even carried on an ambulance. Instead, ambulance service rules in the 1920s and 30s dictated that the surgeon request the response of the fire or police departments whenever oxygen was required by a patient. Another resource was the Consolidated Gas Company, the predecessor to Con Ed, which ran an open touring car with a three-man crew that would deliver a pull motor to the scene of an emergency. As cardiopulmonary resuscitation became the standard of care for cardiac arrests, what role did these devices have in that procedure? New federal standards established in 1970 required anyone who administered oxygen to be certified as an emergency medical technician. 
The early 1970s saw the introduction of the Revivalife single tank resuscitator in New York City, as well as simple portable oxygen tanks assigned to each ambulance crew. And a couple of years later, the first New York City EMS paramedic crews used another pressure-cycled resuscitator, the Robert Shaw, in cases of respiratory and cardiac arrest. It weighed about half what a pull motor did and used two steel oxygen cylinders, each good for 15 to 20 minutes. It could be used as an inhalator, providing free-flow oxygen to a patient, or as a resuscitator, providing pressurized oxygen. In combination with an intubation tube inserted directly into a patient's trachea, they delivered a high volume of concentrated oxygen to the patient. But the device's regulators frequently malfunctioned, causing damage to lung tissue. By the spring of 1989, they were all removed from service in favor of the simpler bag valve mask manual devices that would be connected to supplemental oxygen. In the 1980s, when the FDNY and EMS were still separate agencies, the department distributed Flynn Series 3 units to engine companies around the city. I believe those were combination inhalators, positive pressure resuscitators. But it seems that, you know, a lot was going on back in those days. What do you recall about what was being used in the 1980s then on EMS ambulances? From 1974 forward, paramedic crews carried the Robert Shaw device, and those were the standard of care at the time. BLS units were carrying a simple oxygen tank and regulator that we used as a inhalator. So by that point in time, I mean, the pull motor that we've been talking about was innovative, cutting-edge technology back in 1914 or whatever. But as time went on, as EMS matured, it's, it seems like there were a lot of different devices available for resuscitation, particularly uh, positive pressure or pressure cycles or however they were designed to function. But you were telling me also about a newer device that's coming up for pre-hospital care, the Lucas device. In the past few years, the Lucas device, an oxygen-powered chest compression machine, is the latest labor-saving technology used by paramedics and ambulance crews. A mechanical CPR assist device, it relieves EMTs and paramedics from having to perform CPR in a moving ambulance, an inherently dangerous maneuver as the vehicle hustles through traffic en route to the hospital. All EMS patrol supervisors carry a Lucas device in their command cars and are dispatched to all cardiac arrest assignments. That's interesting. But let's take another quick pause and then come back and conclude our conversation on this interesting topic. Hi, it's Jennifer Brown again. I'm excited to announce that due to overwhelming popularity, the museum is extending the special exhibition Firehouse, the Photography of Jill Friedman through this summer. Showcasing award-winning photographer Jill Friedman's moving collection of photographs documenting New York City firefighters on the job in the 1970s, the exhibition features images contained in Friedman's book Firehouse, which was released in 1977 and garnered rave reviews, highlighting the photo's honesty and grit that captured the danger, tragedy, heroism, and camaraderie of being a firefighter in New York City. To create this display of heroism and heart, Friedman lived among the firefighters in the South Bronx and Harlem for more than a year as she chronicled their work. The exhibition also features a video of Jill discussing her passion for her work and for the FDNY. For more information, please visit the museum website at nycfiremuseum.org.
Welcome back. So we've talked about past and current practices and equipment for cardiopulmonary emergencies. But what do you think the future holds, Jim? The FDNY Safety Command Research and Development Unit is constantly reviewing new technology to improve the outcome of the 1.8 million patients treated by EMS crews each year in New York City. Besides the Lucas device, in the past decade, all FDNY ambulances have been fitted with battery-powered hydraulic stretchers that have significantly reduced back and hand injuries to EMS crews. R&D is also investigating the use of state-of-the-art video laryngoscopes to help paramedics perform advanced procedures on difficult airways, such as in cases of anaphylaxis. Emergency medical services and pre-hospital care has certainly come a long way, even during our lifetimes. What would you say to people considering a career in EMS about how studying and researching the history of the profession impacted your service? Technology has certainly come a long way just in the past 50 years since I first became an EMT. But EMS work is still dependent upon an EMT or paramedic performing critical patient assessment skills without the advantage of x-rays, CT scans, or blood analysis like you would find in a hospital. FDNY EMS personnel learn those skills through extensive and regular ongoing training so that when they're faced with a life-threatening situation, they're fully equipped to manage the crisis and safely transport the patient to the hospital. Since our Throwback FDOI podcasts are audio, not video recordings, people don't see where we do all this. And actually, they are normally recorded in the studios at FDNY headquarters. But today, we're out at Fort Totten by the EMS Academy, where you worked and labored for quite a time to develop a comprehensive EMS museum here on the site. So, Jim, tell us a little bit about what went into that, what's on display, and what could people see there? original EMS museum was done in the early 90s, and we updated it when the academy was refurbished about five years ago. And the EMS museum, which covers the development of New York City's municipal ambulance service, starting in 1869, shortly after the Civil War and just four years after the New York City Fire Department was established. We tell the story of the people who provided pre-hospital medical care. For the first hundred years, physicians rode the ambulance until World War II when they came off and hospital orderlies and nurses' aides came on. In the 1970s, EMTs and paramedics replaced hospital orderlies and nurses' aides. All FDNY EMS probies are given a tour of the EMS museum where they can see how the job developed over the past 150 years. They can see uniform items worn by the first ambulance surgeons, photos of horse-drawn vehicles, and crude early airway and radio equipment that was carried on the ambulance. So, in the end, the FDNY, as well as the pre-merger New York City Emergency Medical Service, has a long history of implementing state-of-the-art equipment with an eye to always keeping up with new advances in the field of cardiorespiratory care and resuscitation. And now it's time for our throwback FDNY trivia segment. In each new episode of our podcast, we like to test your knowledge of the department by asking a question about a fact from our previous show. Here's this month's. What is the name of the chief engineer 
that keeps watch over members of the old volunteer FDNY in Greenwood Cemetery? The answer can be found in our last episode. And remember, you can listen to that and all of our previous episodes by going to nycfiremuseum.org slash throwbackfdny. The Throwback FDNY podcast is brought to you by the New York City Fire Museum with help from the FDNY and the FDNY Foundation, the official philanthropic organization of the department. I'm Gary Urbanowitz. I'd like to thank this month's co-host, Chief James Martin, for joining us and reminding us to celebrate the important life-saving contributions of our frontline medical professionals. It's been a pleasure, and I'll leave you with this. How can you help save the life of a family member, coworker, or friend? The FDNY offers hands-only CPR training for groups or organizations using American Heart Association certified instructors and will come to your venue. To sign up for one of the department's free classes or to schedule a class in your community, please contact the FDNY's mobile CPR training unit by visiting fdnysmart.org for more information. Until next time, thanks for listening and stay safe.